gonna finish it off today with probably uh, the most robust message of this series. Uh, I'm gonna try to um, I'm gonna try to teach us about Jesus, the resurrection, and the second coming all in about 40 minutes. Um, and for those of you who are like, what? What are we even talking about right now? You just sit back. Hopefully the chairs are comfortable and uh, you can play bejeweled and it'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> but this is a this is a massive like this is the way that I wanted to finish this series. Because when we talk about what we're going to be talking about today, it helps us enter into Advent season more appropriately. <laughs> Understanding his second coming shows us the importance of his original coming. Yeah. Is that all right with everybody? Understanding what Jesus is going to do eventually makes the beginning of it all so important for us, right? And so this is the climax, like this is the climax, what we're going to be looking at today. This is the climax of what started over 2,000 years ago. Y'all with me? when Jesus first came, when, when Advent season. And so it's important that we study this today. <clears throat> I wanna say this is a disclaimer, and, and I really do mean this in all seriousness, not to minimize or belittle in any way. Um, I know that for some of you in the room today, maybe you're kicking the tires on faith, you're trying to figure out this Jesus thing. You just started coming to our church, and uh, this message today, the content could... Um, not because you don't understand it, but because of where we're gonna be anchoring ourselves in scripture and some of the stuff that we're talking about today, it could just go a little bit up and over your head, or you just might think, this is nuts. <laughs> and that's okay. I I'm so good with that. Like I said, just look on your, uh, your neighbor's notes and ask them a lot of questions during the message. It's totally good. And, uh, and I pray that today will give you reason to continue to study um, <clears throat> after, after the fact. So, um, massive section of scripture we're going to read. And then I've got 10 points that I've got to get through uh, today, uh, which is really just going to be walking systematically through our verses today. I'm going to spend the lion's share of our time on point number one. Okay, so I'm just kind of letting you know how this, how this journey is going to go today. I'm going to spend the lion's share of, of our time on point number one, and then we're going to zoom the rest of the points. Is that all right with everybody? All right, y'all got your listening ears on today? Everybody open your journals. You're gonna have to toggle between pages 36, 52, and 108. So just boom, 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 boom. Write notes wherever you want to or put it all in one section and then you can disperse it later. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13, all the way through chapter five, verses 11, where we're gonna read to today. Now, Paul's writing this to the Thessalonians because they were interested in what was gonna happen when Jesus came back. It was a teaching that was very near to them, dear to them. And I know for some of us in the room today, this is a big deal for us. You, you spend a lot of time focusing on this subject matter. In, in no way today am I going to bring all the details um, together. I'm gonna be at 150,000 feet on this, on this message today. Is that all right with everybody? Yeah. And so 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. Uh, by the way, those who have fallen asleep is the Bible's way of saying dead, okay? We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, <clears throat> with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Chapter five, verse one, about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you don't need to know anything to be written to you. You don't need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Like labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build each other up as you are already doing. Can we say amen to God's word this morning? Today, as we conclude this series, here we are, we're concluding it. Guys, we did it. 16 weeks. Woo! I wanna to speak to you from this subject today. Jesus, resurrection, and the second coming. The end in light of now. The end in light of now. As we look at the doctrine of last things and how it applies to our life right now. Will you pray with me just one more time? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, has the ability to transform us from the inside out. God, speak to us right now. We need your word in our ears, not Jason's word, your word. May your word come alive to us today. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and the church shouted. And the church shouted. Amen. I'm gonna show you some pictures uh, today. Uh, We're gonna go through some paintings that have been made um, concerning the the coming or the second coming of Jesus. Um, That's the, if you go back to that one, I want you to see, well, both of these is, I don't know what it is, but people are not wearing clothes at the second coming of Jesus. And so... Uh, there's a lot of nudity um, in this that's happening right now. Let's go to the next one. These are, these are across different historical moments. Um, and you can see the, the tribulation in all of this, the clouds, Jesus coming out of the sky. Next one, guys. Um, this, this one cracks me up every single time. Um, I do not think this one's accurate at all. Um, I do not believe in Santa Claus, Jesus. Um, I can tell you right now, he is not that white, Okay. He's actually not white. This is AI, Return of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's go to the next one. This one's beautiful. Um, as you can see, lots of depictions. I've got one more for you right here. And you can see, pause right here, guys. Uh, as you can see, there's a lot of imagery that looks the same around these. Jesus coming out of the sky, um, the division between peoples, um, all of this happening. Um, and, and this can be a very confusing subject matter for people. I've got one more picture that I think probably helps a lot of us out when it comes to this subject matter. This is what most of us see right here. <clears throat> when we talk about the second coming of Jesus, can I get an amen in church today, right? This is where a lot of us are at with this subject matter. Uh, I say this tongue in cheek, But the doctrine of last things or eschatology at times can feel like a confusing maze of uncertain ideas and conspiracy theories for many. And for many, it elicits a great degree of fear, especially in light of what we're seeing take place around the world and at home. First, I want us to realize that this subject is not one that should bring fear into our lives, especially as a follower of Jesus. 
This is why John would pen a, a beautiful encouragement to us in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. This is what he writes. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have, here it is, confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And so the one who fears is not complete in love. In other words, John's saying to us, listen, if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Come on, somebody. If you are in Jesus, that, that these things, these topics, these ideas, these concepts, these pictures, they do not need to bring fear or illicit fear. They bring hope and they bring encouragement because we are found in the complete love of Jesus. But the questions, the thoughts, the uncertainty, and the fear of the unknown are not a new reality, especially for the church. Paul the apostle would write to the church in Rome, and try to help them as they wrestled with this subject matter. Listen to what he would write in Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, listen to this, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25, now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. See, Paul was familiar with how the doctrine of last things could be intimidating and challenging for people to incorporate into their faith and functional life. So Paul made it a point to reference it and teach about it in most of his letters as he would pastor his churches. And this is a teaching that is just as important for us today. Y'all tracking with me still? Now, I wanna pause here and say this. Culturally, I would say that we're actually fascinated with the end of things. How many of you agree with me? I, I, we were watching TV yesterday and, um, and there was a commercial that came on and the commercial came on was a bunch of people, they were laying on a beach and they were hanging out and people were playing and people were surfing. And then all of a sudden, the, the, a, an Arctic breeze started to come across the ocean. Waves started to pile. It hit people on the beach. They froze. And then the whole city started to freeze. <laughs> it, was a, it was a commercial for another movie depicting the end of days. We're fascinated with it. Hollywood is making money hand over fist by depicting these realities. Y'all with me? So for us to say that we're not uh, amazed by it or not curious about it uh, would not be an accurate assessment of where we are at. But the church, more specifically the Bible, we actually have a very good view on this. And I wanna tell you this, we have a hopeful view on this. Y'all with me? We have a hopeful view on this. Now, an important idea to note is given to us from the preacher's commentary series, and I quote, Paul's description of the day of the Lord is shaped by the picturesque imagery of a style of writing common from about 300 BC to Paul's day. It's called apocalyptic 
writing. And like poetry or prose has a style of its own. Apocalypse means the unveiling or revelation of that which is hidden or mysterious. It abounds in vivid imagery, symbolic numbers and codes, and is not intended to be taken literally at all points. Among examples of this found in the Bible are the books of Daniel, Revelation, sections of the gospel, such as Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus would preach this way. The language here is not that of a literal news account, but the language of vision and, someone shout hope. hope. Vision and hope. So as we just read the section of Thessalonians that we, that we did a moment ago, it's crucial for us to realize, we need to understand this today. Somebody needs to write this down because it's important. That Paul's eschatology or thoughts about the end of days informed most of his writing. Most of Paul's letters were informed by his view of the end of days. How many of you would agree with me that the way you view something is really important to understand if somebody's gonna read your writing? Right? So my wife and I argue about this. She's an auditorium to do uh, two today. We argue about this all the time because I am a proficient reader of the preface of every book that I read. Come on, somebody. How many, how many of you are with me? I read the introduction. I read the preface. And she's like, no, nah, I'm just going to jump to chapter one. And I'm like, you can't do that. You cannot jump to chapter one. Why? Because everything you need to know about the book and why he's writing this or she's writing this is in the preface. Come on, how many of you agree with me? The preface is important, right? And still some of you are just going to skip to chapter one. Some of you are like, I'm going to skip to the last chapter and just see what he says because that's where the good stuff's at. So it's important because so many times we can come to a letter as we just read in Thessalonians and we can go, Paul, what are you, what are you even talking about right now? Why are you, we, don't, we don't have context. We don't have understanding about this. We don't get why he's digging into the things that he's digging into. But it's important to understand that Paul actually believed that Jesus was going to come back while he was still alive. That was Paul's view. He didn't really necessarily have in mind church thousands of years later. I would actually contend, now I'm gonna give you some of my biblical study and where I stand on this. I would actually contend there is a lot, like he did not have 21st century worship as we are doing it right now in his mind. And that changes, come on somebody, that changes the way that you read a letter. That changes the way that we have all kinds of subjects that we deal with. So why do I think this? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18, to 18 listen to what he says. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, there it is again, who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with, with these words. As Paul structures his writing with the pronoun we, this indicates that he is including himself and not writing from a framework of seeing the church, the body of Christ, around much longer. Paul desired to be at home with the Lord. He, he desired to be with Jesus. I point this out so that we can understand this truth right here. And some of us need to write this down today. The idea of an imminent return of Christ has been in the eyes of believers for generations. Y'all yeah, right. see what I'm talking about? This idea has been in the eyes of believers for generations. 
and still even some today. And I get, I get this question a lot. This is why I, I wanted to finish out this series with this message because people always ask me, in light of what's happening today, here's the question, I kid you not, every single week, when do you think Jesus is coming back? <laughs> to which I go, I have no idea when Jesus is coming back. Do I hope for the day? Yes, I do. I wanna be there when Jesus comes riding out of the clouds, not like the guy with the arrow looking like Santa Claus Jesus, but when actual Jesus steps out of heaven. Come on, somebody, I, like, I, I want that. But until he does, I'm focused on a mission. We've got a great commission to fulfill. There's still people to be reached. Come on, there's still the gospel to be preached. And at the end of the day, my eyes are forward until he comes back or takes me home. Okay, so we're gonna walk through this beautiful section of scripture, look at the statements Paul makes to encourage the Thessalonians, words that should also bring hope and encouragement to us today. Guys, I'm gonna have to take this off. So pardon me for just a second. Um, I'm getting warm up here. These lights are like a sauna. Um, okay, Whew. oh, much better. Is that all right? Sorry. <laughs> Um, and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna just systematically work verse, verse by verse. So from uh, chapter four, verse 13, all the way through chapter five, verse 11, we're gonna spend most of the time on point number one. And then we got nine more points just to blitz through. Okay, so fast riders, everybody lean in, turn to your neighbor, turn to your neighbor and say, it's gonna get good. Turn back to your neighbor and say, it's gonna get confusing. <laughs> All right, here we go. Every shot number one. Here's the first thing that Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says this, we are not to be uninformed about this subject matter. So I wanna answer the question for some of us. They're like, well, what's the point? Why do we even need to talk about this? Well, Paul says he doesn't want us to be uninformed about this. This is what's really cool about systematically walking through verse by verse with scripture because we can just look at some of these things. So we're not to be uninformed about this. First Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters concerning those who are asleep. So you will not grieve like the rest. We'll talk about that in a minute. Who have no hope. Okay, now let's work through the details. I'm gonna throw out lots of scriptures, lots of ideas. Go back, rewind this message eight times during the week, during the Christmas season. It's the gift that keeps on giving, okay? <laughs> so let's talk about the second coming. What do we know about the second coming? I borrow from R.T. Kendall's work, Understanding Theology, Volume 1. I wanna make sure that I cite that source because everything I'm about to say is written in his book. But I think he presents a very succinct outline of the doctrine concerning the second coming of Christ in a very succinct way, okay? The second coming. So what is it? Well, according to scripture, it's the personal return of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Number two, it's the final resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51 through to 55. It's the final judgment, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. What happens at the second coming? Well, what do we know? According to scripture, the last trumpet sounds, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Every eye will see Jesus, Revelation 1, 7. The souls of the redeemed will be reunited with their bodies, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through to 17. They will be glorified, Romans 8, 39, or 8 30 and 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. All of us will stand before God. Hebrews 9, 27, Revelation 20, 11. What happens after the second coming? The lost are sent to, judge, uh, to everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 41, Revelation 20, 15, and the saved are sent to the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, and Revelation 22. We did a whole message on eternity in the series, go back. That's why we've done the messages that we've done leading up to now, 
okay? Once again, this is a high-level approach to, to this subject. I'm trying to speak to content that could be a year-long series in and of itself. This subject is mainly given to us in what is called apocalyptic literature, found within scripture, the Old Testament prophecy, John's vision given us to the book of Revelation, as well as segments that Paul speaks to in his letters and specific churches of the New Testament. Now, for some of you who are very, very versed in this understanding, you've spent time studying this topic as a follower of Jesus, I am not gonna get to all of your whatabouts and I'm definitely not gonna get into all the details that you've probably studied. This is a 150,000 foot view at this thing. Y'all with me? Okay. And the other thing that I'm not gonna do is I'm not gonna be able to tell you when Jesus is coming back. So please don't ask, right? This following statement that I'm about to make is crucial for all of us to understand. Orthodoxy in this doctrinal era, area is that we believe in a literal return of Christ and the resurrection of us all to stand before Christ for judgment. That is orthodoxy in this area. How and what that looks like, we can have diversity in it. As long, hear me when I say this, church, everybody looking at me when I say this, okay? As long as that diversity does not become dogma and divisive. And some of this issue, the reason that Paul spoke to it is because in churches, this issue was creating division. This issue here at the well will not create division amongst us. One of you clapping, let's try this again, come on. It will not create division. I know we have different viewpoints on it. Some of you have studied this in depth and so you've got an idea. Orthodoxy is this, Jesus is literally coming back. We will all rise and stand before him in judgment. That's orthodoxy. But how do, what does that look like? Does it look like one of these pictures? I hope not. Because I'm gonna freak out if there's naked babies coming through the skies. Like, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> Honestly, if you saw that picture and that formed your idea of the second coming, I'd be afraid of it as well. There's this horde of like Valentine babies coming at you. <laughs> It's so bad. All right. So let's look at some of the diversity found within this subject. Basically, again, high level view. There are three major views that are held on the subject of the second coming. There's other sub views, sub points. I'm giving you big, big ticket ideas. These views find their premise on what is known as the millennium. It is a segment of time that is presented to us in Revelation 20 and it's presented about six times. All right. In his book, A Survey of Biblical Doctrine, Charles Caldwell writes this, the three basically different millennial viewpoints are based on the questions of the unconditional or conditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant and the fulfillment of the kingdom promises of the Davidic covenant. Those are two covenants that were given by God, one to Abraham, one to David. Y'all tracking with me still? Okay, this is where the subject of Israel comes in to focus from a biblical perspective. I'm gonna try to cover thousands of years of history in about two minutes. (laughs) The subject of Israel can be summed up in three words, lineage, land, and lordship. God would make a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. He would later confirm and bolster that covenant in Genesis 13, 14 through to 15, and Genesis 15, one through seven, and Genesis 17, one through to 18. 
In this covenant, there were personal promises that we would see fulfilled in Abraham's life, Genesis 18, 17. And it's also talked about in James chapter two, verse 23. But in this covenant, we would see promises given to Abraham's descendants as well, the nation of Israel. The details of these promises continue with Abraham's lineage, Genesis chapter 17, verse seven, to make them a vast and great nation, Genesis chapter 12, verse two, Genesis 13, verse 16, Genesis 15, verse five. I'm throwing all of these out there so that you know that there's proof text for this. You need to go back and research it. <laughs> you do the work, okay. <laughs> but it would be, here, here's what I want to hear now. It would be the promise of Genesis 15, 18 and Genesis 17, eight, where we would see the promise of a specified land with a very specific boundary line given to the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants. It would be this promise that creates the context for much of the conflict that we are seeing today in Israel, specific land boundaries. Now, many theologians agree that many of the promises given to Abraham have been fulfilled. We are seeing fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. We have seen it and, and many prophecies fulfilled, but there's more to be fulfilled. But the promise of an occupied land has not been fulfilled yet. According to the boundaries set in Genesis 15, 18, many would believe that Israel in all of our history has yet to occupy the land given and promised by God. Now, I wanna stop for just a second because a lot of us right now are being informed by what we're seeing in the media about these issues. My job today is not to bring political commentary or news commentary. My job today is to present to us scripture. Right, right, right. Come on, did y'all hear me today? My job today is to present to us scripture. Now, I wanna just, I wanna, I, I gotta walk through things like this. Um, I don't necessarily think like, can pastors engage in political commentary at times <clears throat> and bring biblical information to the, to the policies and to the things that we're dealing with in the world today? Yes, 100%. And I don't think that's an off place. But what I wanna say is that my primary job, I, just, just so you know, I'm not a political pundit. I do not study politics that much. I am aware of what's going on in the world and I work really hard to be informed and help us see scripture in light of what's happening. But here's where I'm gonna sit in today. I wanna sit in the place where we look at what scripture says, and then you have to research that and dig through that and come to an understanding on all the things that are happening in the world and specifically with Israel. Right. So there's a lot more that goes into this subject. And again, it would take so much time to deal with it. But for clarity though, theologians agree, here's what I want us to hear, that the conflict, notice I said theologians agree. Let me just do this side over here. <laughs> say, say it after me, say theologians agree. Okay, center section say, theologians agree. Theologians. Don't worry, we're gonna get to the statement in a second. This side over here, theologians, say, say it with me. Theologians, theologians come on faster. Okay, everybody, <laughs> this side over here, say, theologians agree. Theologians okay, agree. not news sources, theologians agree. Right. Y'all warmed up for the statement now? Theologians agree that the conflict we are seeing today is spiritual, not political. Y'all with me? Spiritual, not political. And this would come down to how you interpret the covenantal agreements between God, Abraham, and the children of Israel. Further covenants made by God in what is known as the Davidic covenant further affirm the importance of Israel and the promises made to them. Okay? The fulfillment of these covenants and promises with Israel, a people, not a political state, is what has created then the three primary views held 
concerning the future coming of Christ. Y'all still with me? Okay, everybody nod at me. Okay, we're gonna go deeper now. Y'all ready? Here it goes. Okay. Borrowing once again from Charles Caldwell's A Survey of Biblical Doctrine, a systematic theology resource, I quote, three different views. The three views go like this. First one is this, post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. And I quote, this viewpoint teaches that the second coming of Christ will occur after, post the millennium. Post-millennialists look for a utopian state on earth to be brought about through the efforts of the church. And during this golden age, the church, not Israel, will experience the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David. Key points to consider. The kingdom will be on earth. Christ will be absent and rule in people's hearts. There will be a general resurrection of all. There will be a general judgment and eternity will be ushered in following all of this. There's a picture that might help increasing righteousness until the millennium is brought in and continues for a thousand years. A thousand years of glory. Jesus comes back, resurrection and judgment, off to eternity go. That's post-millennialism, okay? Second one is amillennialism. This viewpoint teaches that there will be no millennium at all in the future. Whatever kingdom there is, is now. This is built off of the idea that Jesus would say the kingdom is, is here. The kingdom has come. This is where this theology or this idea is built off of. It is heaven's rule over the church. Conditions in this present age will become increasingly worse until the second coming of Christ at the end of this church age. And the return of the Lord will be immediately followed by a general resurrection and judgment and the commitment of the eternal state. Key points, the promises to Abraham have been fulfilled. This is what they think. Others see the promises as unfulfilled because of unmet conditions by Israel and that the church fulfills the promises in a non-literal way. So there's a lot of interplay between the church and Israel on this. Y'all tracking with me still? Okay, is this about as clear as mud? This interpretation spiritualizes the promises as being fulfilled by the church. Here's a picture for us all, for those of us who are better with shapes and colors. Christ is reigning in heaven now. We see a great apostasy. Jesus comes back. There's no thousand years, resurrection and judgment, and we're off to eternity. Third one is what we call premillennialism. Premillennialists hold that the second coming of Christ, again, I'm quoting, will occur before the millennium and that Christ, not the church, as in post-millennialism, will be the one to establish the kingdom. Christ will actually reign over the earth as king and during the millennium, the Jewish people will experience the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and David. I will say this as, a, as an asterisk to this one right here. Um, for especially evangelical churches, premillennialism seems to be what is highly held uh, in regard, is most held by people. Y'all still tracking with me? Okay, key points. An increased apostasy within the church. This is divergence from orthodoxy. The tribulation is the climax of this deliverance or divergence. Christ returns, ushers in his kingdom for a thousand years, then resurrection and judgment. Then eternity is ushered in. This view interprets the promises and prophecies of scripture, literally, especially in light of Israel, 1 Corinthians 10.32, Romans 11.26. Here's a picture for shapes and colors, people. Present age of the church, apostasy and tribulation, second coming, millennium, resurrection and judgment, and eternity. Those are the three highly held views of the return of Christ. 
Any questions? I'm just kidding. Don't ask questions right now. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and the church went. <laughs> now, we can't even begin to talk about concepts like the rapture, okay? Signs of the times. But at least you can see with these general held views that are informed by biblical interpretation, how these generally can inform people as to how they look at every single day of life right now. Y'all with me? So we look at a war. We look at the conflict of Israel. We look at our nation right now and what's happening in the divergence of orthodoxy. We hear rumors of war. We see pestilence. We see famine. We see disease. We see all these things. And so when you are, when you're trying to understand what the Bible has to say about this, you're going to view some of those things in the world. And I get it. And you're going to, and you're going to come to the conclusion, man, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the day that the Lord is coming back. But I just want to remind us, Paul and the church of Thessalonica, they thought the same thing. And even more so because they were getting killed for their faith. Christians were being beheaded. They were being fed to lions. They were being imprisoned. And, and so how many of you would know for Paul and, and the disciples and the apostles and the followers of Jesus in first century Christianity, they would have been like, man, this has got to be it. We're losing our lives right now. Everything is backward. Every, like nothing good is happening right now. So could you see how they would look at all of those pictures and be like, Jesus is coming tomorrow. Get ready. And again, that's why we have to understand that generations of Christians have held this idea of the imminent return of Christ in their eyes for generations. We can't even begin to talk about concepts like the rapture due to time. I don't even want to get into that. But here's where I stand. According to Paul in Corinthians, it's a mystery. (laughs) He said it, not me. And so here's where I abstain from an opinion. And I trust that God is going to do what God is going to do, how he wants to do it. Come on, somebody. God's in control of it all. So that's point number one. We have nine more points. Here we go. Everybody shout number two. Is everybody, is everybody semi-clear on this whole thing? Here's, here's, what I, here's what I hope happens. You will go away from here, and here's what I hope happens. You will study your Bible. Yep. Please find scholarly resources, not Wikipedia. If you ask me questions based upon something you read on Wikipedia, I'm going to send you away with eight different books, okay? Scholarly resources and scripture. Let me say it like this. Scripture, then scholarly resources. Okay, number two, Rashad, number two. The second thing that Paul says is that we got to have a proper, proper understanding alleviates grief. Now, here's where I'm going to zoom through a lot of these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, okay? Proper understanding of these issues alleviates grief. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, dead, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. What was happening is that the people um, in this church, uh, because they were so preoccupied with Jesus coming back, they were getting concerned that if he came back, um, what would happen to the people who have already died? That was, their, that was their concern. And so Paul's trying to inform them with, with hope. He's saying, listen, you, you don't need to worry about that so that you don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. Followers of Jesus, write this down, have a hope like no other. Yeah. 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 
Followers of Jesus have a hope like no other. We do not have to grieve death. Of course, we mourn loss, but we do not have to grieve death because it is just the beginning of forever. This is actually why I've said, um, I've made jokes about it, but this is actually a real comment, is that I actually prefer, my preference is to preside over funerals, not weddings. And here's why. Because there's, so, there's something sacred to someone's passing. Even more so when that person's a follower of Jesus. Come on, somebody. Because they're healed. They're whole. They have hope. Everything has been made new. So we don't grieve death because it's just the beginning of forever. Number three, every shot number three? three. There's a third thing that Paul says is that belief in Jesus's resurrection is the foundational belief for a future resurrection. Belief in Jesus's resurrection is the foundational belief for a future resurrection. Listen to what he writes. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's gonna major on this issue. He's gonna say it again in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through to 14. Listen to what he writes. Now, if Christ, and this is, this is savage right here. It's so important for us, okay? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. This one goes straight to the point, And I'm going to major on this one now. Point three is not point one, a lot of information. Point three is the crux of our faith, church. At the end of the day, it all hangs in the balance as to whether you believe by faith that Jesus got out of the grave. We do not believe, like it's easy for people to believe that Jesus was a good man. It's easy for people to believe that Jesus healed and did some things and had some nice party tricks. It's easy to believe that Jesus was placed upon the cross. Oh, but it takes faith to believe that three days later, the stone rolled away and Jesus got out of the grave. That takes faith and it all hangs on that issue right there. Because if he didn't get out of the grave, hell was not defeated. If he didn't get out of the grave, then death was not defeated. And our faith, as Paul would say, is for nothing. Now, let me go on record and say this, lest you think I'm crazy, I am. I am still crazy enough to believe and with great conviction that Jesus got out of the grave. You cannot push me off that point. You can disagree with me all you want. You can call me weird. You can call me out of touch. You can say it scientifically doesn't make sense, but God is not in my box. He is not in your box, but he's out of the grave. And I get hyped on this one. Why? Because it all hangs on this. If Jesus didn't get out of the grave, then there's no point in us being here. Lest I offend somebody, we might as well all just gather for a Tony Robbins hype course. Let it sink. Because that's what it's about. We didn't come to church to be inspired. Hopefully that happens. You didn't come to church to get encouraged, but I hope it happens. We came to church to worship the one 
who got out of the grave. We came to church to worship the one who gave his life for your life and for my life. We came to church to worship the one that stomped on the head of death. We came to church to worship the one who death could not hold. That's why we're here. Number four. Fourth thing that Paul says. Have we shot number four? Number four, the authority of these truths is based on God's word. I'm not going to spend any time on this, but this is what he says. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Earlier in this series, we covered this issue as we dealt with the Bible and its authority in our lives. So all of this teaching that we're talking about today is informed by God's word. Y'all with me today? So you got to go back, listen to that message if you want to start discovering the beauty of God's word, the Bible. Number five, Rabbi number five. We have consistent imagery for the return of Christ. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I think it's safe to say that the Bible communicates not just ethereal concepts of Jesus' return, but very literal truths concerning his return. Again, these should not be points of contention, but rather ways of seeing the beauty and the grandeur of Christ. As we'll discover in our next series, beginning next week, called Majesty, Christ's advent was humble and without bravado, but when he comes again, it will be majestic. Oh, it was humble. It was quiet. It was without fanfare. It was in a manger, a stable, destitute, poor, dirty. There wasn't trumpets, there wasn't clouds. There wasn't this extravagance. Oh, but church, when he comes again, it will not be humble. It will not be quiet. Yeah. It'll be majestic. Yeah. Yeah. You know when, when the sunset paints the sky red and the mountains go pink? Yeah. Oh, that's just, that, that is just a shadow mm. of what it'll look like when he returns. Come on. The beauty that we see that was made with his creative touch, it's still just a shadow of what we will see when he returns. Yeah. Come on. The beauty, the majesty, the grandeur of his return. And I get it. It sounds wild and out. How can you believe this? Well, it's the same way that I believe with faith that he got out of the grave. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the hope that I have in a turbulent yeah. world that my king will come again one day. That is our King Jesus. Number six, every shot number six. Times and seasons of Christ's second coming are guesses at best. (laughs) It's okay, release the tension, you can laugh at that one. Let me say it one more time. Everybody's like, should I laugh? Um, Yes, times and seasons of Christ's second coming are guesses at best. At best, 1 Thessalonians 5, one through two. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. 
For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Here's what I like to say concerning this issue. No one knows when he is going to return, but that does not mean we do not believe in his return. Okay? So I know there's people running around on the internet and I don't want to offend anybody with this next statement, but I'm going to say it anyways. I know there's people running around on the internet talking about blood moons and sunsets and seagulls coming at the right time and certain mathematics because God apparently loves math. And when this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens, Jesus will return and then the dove coos. Ooh, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> guess what? All those things have happened and we're still here. You see what I'm saying? And here's the problem, is that the church loses the focus of our mission when our eyes are in the clouds. Two things we have not been called to do. We have not been called to stare at the clouds or stare at our feet. Our eyes are to be on the horizon. We're always constantly hoping and looking for it. But until he returns, we got a mission that we are on. We got things to do. We got people to reach. We got things to build all for the glory of his name. Listen to Gary DeMar said on this issue. He would say this, theologian, we would do, do well to live more in the consciousness of this than we are inclined to do. Every generation of Christians is called to live in the hope of his coming, not in fear and in forecasts, but with the undergirding sense that this is what history is all about. I love that. Warren Worsby says it like this, theologians call this the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. Imminent means that it can happen at any moment. As Christians, we do not look for signs, nor must any special events transpire before the Lord can return. These great events will take place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Number seven, or shout number seven. I love this one. Peace and security often lure us into apathy and unawareness. Peace and security often lure us into apathy and unawareness. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman or they will, and they will not escape. Come on, I'm gonna ask you this question. How often do we allow the fixtures of our modern society to lure us into apathy and unawareness concerning our faith in Jesus? Paul is saying, I want you to be aware of this. I don't want you to get so secure, so safety oriented that you're not flexible and agile. But here's what happens is when we don't have a view of the things to come, we as Christians as well, especially those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, it's amazing how many of us fight for security and peace. Can I just tell you your peace and your security is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Oh, can I preach at some people today? Your peace and security is not in your wallet. You may have brought Amex with you, but your peace and security is not in your wallet. You may have a full bank account. You may have a 401k. You may have all whatever other Ks there are. You, <laughs> your profile could look great. Your investments could be, could be stable, but your peace and your security is not in your wallet. Right. Your peace and your security is not in your home. Yeah. Oh, I'm messing some people up right now because you're like, well, wait a second. I, that was an investment. doesn't matter. Your peace and security is not in it. Your peace and security is not in your job. Your peace and security is not in that education. Your peace and security is not in your investments. Your peace and security is not in your relationships. Your peace and security is not in your kids. Your peace and security is not in your marriage. Your peace and security is not in your, like it doesn't, your peace and security is not found in any one thing on this 
planet. Your peace and security is in the one who rules over it all. His name is Jesus. Come on, somebody. His name is Jesus. Number eight. Number shot number eight. Oh, we're almost there. Here we go. We are just a couple points from landing the plane on tethered. Let's go. Number eight, because we are in Christ, we should not be surprised about anything. Right. <laughs> First Thessalonians 5, 4 through 5. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the, to the night or the darkness. It's amazing to me how many Christians I've watched over the past few years, especially, act surprised that these things are happening. Can I tell you who's not surprised? All of heaven. <laughs> right? There's not like a, like, a, like a boardroom that got filled in heaven and they're like, hey guys, we need to talk about this. There's some stuff happening down there that I had no idea. Jesus was like, oh my goodness, guys, did that one catch, Holy Spirit, did that catch you by surprise? I was really thrown for a loop in 2020. <laughs> Who knew? I'm being facetious, but it's amazing how many people I watched jump ship on their faith because they were surprised that stuff happened. Can I just tell you, church, especially as followers of Christ, people anchored in his word, we don't need to be surprised. We can be confident. I can worship no matter what is happening around me. I can be in God's presence no matter what is happening around me. Come what may, Jesus is my anchor and I am not surprised. Come on, is there anybody who's thankful for what we have in Christ? I love this one, number nine. Number nine, he says, what we know about the end should frame how we live now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 10. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake, be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Watch what Paul's about to do. Watch what Paul's about to do. He's about to take people who are so focused on the end and anchor them in reality, okay? But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. He says, be self-controlled. And here's the problem that many of us face is that if we focus too much on the end, we could find ourselves in danger of just throwing off all restraint. Right? How many of you have watched football games lately when the team's down, like horribly down? Come on, how many of you follow that team who's horribly down all the team? Right? They're horribly down. And so have you ever noticed this little thing that happens even in sportsmanship? Some of the players start casting off restraint. They start making bad hits on people. They're mad, they're frustrated, and then they think this in their mind. I've done it before in, in competition. Well, we're already this far down. We might as well just go all in. Paul's saying, don't do that. Because here's the thing, you don't know when Jesus is gonna come back. So if he doesn't come back on your watch, you still have a generation following you. Your self-control now in light of what is to come means stuff for your kids and their kids and their kids. But you can be so future fixated that you just cast off restraint because it's like, it doesn't matter. 
but it does matter. That's why Paul says in light of his return, live self-controlled now. Because your life matters. And number 10, the last one, come on, everybody shout number 10. Here it is. These truths should encourage and bring us hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. I love how one theologian said it. He says, our hope is unlike any other hope for it is grounded in the fact of Christ's victory over death through his resurrection. Our sorrow therefore is unlike other sorrow for it is embraced by our hope. Church, this has been tethered and these are the truths that anchor us. When everything else seems like it's floating away, you and I are connected to the word of truth and it keeps us anchored when everything else is in chaos. And until he returns, we keep our eyes on the horizon and we live our lives in such a way that would bring glory and honor to the one who's in it all, through it all, above it all, and for it all. And his name is Jesus. And the church shouted. Amen, 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 amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me today? With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. We've done some work in this series, big work. And for some of us in here today, this was a really important message. For those of us in here today that maybe have yet to say yes to Jesus, yet to say, man, I wanna follow this Jesus that you've been talking about, this risen savior, this is your day. So we're gonna pray a prayer all together today so we don't leave anybody out. But if you'd be in this room today and you're saying, hey man, that's me, I need Jesus. I just want Jesus. That you wanna follow him. You want forgiveness and grace in him. Make this your prayer today. Come on out loud, all of us in here so we don't leave anybody out. Would you repeat this after me? Everybody say, Jesus. I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me. I repent of my sins. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. And today, I thank you that I am saved. In Jesus' name.